The greatest asset of any department is the firefighter. In this insightful book, veteran firefighter and author Jeff Rothmeyer aims to galvanize minds of firefighters so they can fulfill their potential and execute effectively in the moment of truth. Training to act effectively means understanding individual tactics fully. Aggression that is not supported by competence, morality, and discipline can be reckless. To be effective, firefighters must believe in and cultivate the power of their mental abilities. Understanding the nature of combat, fire, and humanity informs their instincts. A proper philosophical approach to firefighting is the key to tactical excellence. Hi, I'm David Rhodes, and welcome to the Fire Engineering's Fire Books podcast. Today, I'm your host, and we've got a special guest. Our One of our newest publications that was just released is Mastering the Craft. And we've got the author of that, Jeff Rothmeyer, with us. So, Jeff, how's it going? Uh, very good, Chief. Uh, honored to be here uh, working on our important mission of uh, pushing the standard in, in our craft. Thank you. And this book has been out a couple of months now, and uh, you've already become a gazillionaire. You're you're selling your house, moving to the beach, uh, all that. That's that is correct, right? Absolutely. Um, we got that uh, in full send. So, um, yeah. Uh, people find out real quick that writing a book is more a labor of love than it is a uh, unless you're some type of a, a novelist or, or writing about. Um, something that's just hugely popular these these industry books are very much needed but uh it is a labor of love to get that message out for sure so tell us uh what was the motivation behind mastering the craft uh well it, it really started uh when i was pursuing uh my master's degree in organizational change leadership um to, to complete that degree, I had to write a seminar paper and uh, I knew it was like an 80 page um, prerequisite, I guess, of a paper. That's the length it needed to be. So I knew the only way I could write for 80 straight pages uh, and do it well was if it was a passion or a, a topic that I was very passionate about. And in the fire service, uh, I'm passionate about the fire service, but one of the issues I see impacting our, I'll call it combat effectiveness, our ability to support our mission life was the almost the fear in the fire service at times to, to pursue aggressive tactics and to commit fully to competence. Um, those are things that I, I saw as constraints and I, I wanted to know why. And uh, instead of just my impression, you know, emotional impression of like, well, we're just not committed or, or we just don't have enough courage or this and that. I, instead of being critical, I wanted to, to understand deeply why are we not adopting a philosophy that, that uh, puts us on a path towards excellence and, and that path that, and is what I deem as an aggressive behavior path that... Um, supports life. So I, I was, I was trying to quantify the risks and then also the gains of being aggressive on the fire ground. And so then that paper, um, while it's very technical, so a lot of my friends are in the book are telling me like, 
a lot of big words in there, Jeff. And I was like, well, it had to be. I was trying to get a, a degree. Um, after I got technical, I also wanted to get practical uh, with some other you know, doctrine in the military that kind of supported the technical aspects of why we should be aggressive to how we can be aggressive. Um, and I believe your mindset, i.e. a philosophy, is really the foundation of your behaviors. So uh, I tried to guide us through that. Did you see, um, obviously you've got 17 years um, in the fire service and you went from um, a smaller department to a larger urban urban department. And did you see during that time um, that maybe there was a decline in that in that mindset between departments? No, just, uh, in general over your, over your career, the fire service in general. Let me make sure I'm uh, understanding a, dec- a decline in the, the mindset or what's yeah, a decline in the mindset of understanding the mission and why you're here and, and having that philosophy embedded into you, like you explained the aggressive, uh, mentality. Some people will look at that word and that's all autom- automatic, negative, aggressive. And so they, they associate that with, uh, um, unnecessary risk and, um, cowboy mentality behaviors. But one of the things that's so impressive about your book is you actually show both sides of that. And, and that's, that appears to be like one of the main goals is to show that sometimes the aggressive mindset is the safe mindset. Right. And as long as you understand the mission of what you're doing and you obviously have to have the competence to go with it. We, I think we both agree there are aggressive actions that happen that are reckless. Yeah. um, If they're not in the right context. So I was just wondering from your 17 years, did you see sort of an ebb and flow where maybe, it was dialed into that at one time uh, in your experience and it drifted away. And then that was part of your motivation to get it back. Or was this just to sort of put it all in one package to explain it? Yeah. Well, I didn't see a decline in aggressive behavior. I just saw, you know, when I came on St. Paul, that was my first department. Um, I, I had no idea what aggressive was or not. And, and so I just started to see how our department behaved on the fire ground. And oftentimes it was aggressive, but certain aspects as I became more, I'll, I'll say mentored in the craft, certain aspects um, didn't align with what I had assumed would be uh, the right philosophy for fire attack. And, and so I wondered like, one of the aspects was, is maybe we didn't train every day at the station. Um, and then, so I kind of countered that against my military experience. And I was like, you know, when we went to combat, we were very intentional about training on and drilling on every aspect that we felt we would encounter, um, should a firefight arise, uh, because our lives were on the line. And, and so then when I was in the fire service, now I'm, I was thinking, 
we're not drilling every day. Are we not expecting a fire to occur? And, and should I, should I, uh, happen upon a victim? You know, am I really properly drilled for that? Um, that really became apparent to me when I became a company officer seven years into my tenure there that I, I, I really adopted uh, a culture that didn't a hundred percent support that mission. And then I went to a volunteer fire department and I kind of ran into some of the same paradigms of, of, uh, we're going to train once a week, you know, we'll, whether or not that training was aligned with, uh, mission needs, that was, that was debatable. And, and, um, and then I started reaching out to mentors because as I tried to push some of what I thought was proper philosophy and then behaviors, um, into those organizations. And I started, you know, I started meeting a lot of friction. Um, I had to find mentors to counterweight. Am I, do I have the right philosophy? Is it, am I missing something? Um, am I in the wrong? And, and so some of my mentors, uh, gentlemen like Bob Pressler and Mike Lombardo, who have, uh, Jeff Shoup, who have, you know, 30 plus years, 40 plus years in this craft, they told me uh, about aggressive behavior on the fire ground um, and, and more attuned my awareness to, you know, why is it maybe that we're not VESing as a regular practice? Why is it that we are not searching without a line uh, or above the fire aggressively? Why do those, why are those, uh, aggressive tactics valuable to our craft and our mission and why it might be that we're not doing that in the, the organizations that I'm a part of, um, which was helpful because before it was more of like a political thing, right. uh, you know, as opposed to a cultural um, and craft, I guess, necessity. And that's what really struck me about the book is it it's easy to write a book in a bravado mindset that supports aggressiveness. And, and you'd know that like, okay, guys that are really all about the job are going to flock to it and love it. But you've really taken a deep dive into why some of these aggressive actions like VES and searching above the fire um, without a line. And you're not saying that this is an always or, or must, everything is situational, but you break it down into the advantages, the disadvantages. Um, and you're looking at the whole picture of when it's applicable, applicable and, and when it's not. And uh, to me, that was such a responsible way because this could have been written different and been a carrying card for folks who may not have the competence and the understanding to just be aggressive. And that is totally not it at all. So it is to me, it is like, it's just a phenomenal look. It's, it's speaking for everybody who has the competence and the aggressiveness to be able to function. In other words, they know their craft and they have um, 
They've made mistakes, but they've learned. They take the time to learn building construction, fire behavior, fire dynamics. They're looking at new information and they're making adjustments. They are not reckless, but sometimes they get lumped into the reckless category by some departments, some administrations, um, just because I think they don't understand building construction and and tactics. And you made a key point about alignment. That's really the whole purpose right there is, is bringing the knowledge, the aggressiveness, the preparedness, and the training into alignment so that you can execute. And if it's not aligned, if you're just training to get your training hours in, then what's the, what's the point, right? Right. So what are some of the things that like that you did, whether it was your company or, or through training groups or whatever to sort of put those pieces together? Well, I guess early as a company officer, my training efforts were just, uh, I realized that I, I was mediocre as a firefighter because I started going to more, I guess, uh, professional development classes and conferences and realizing the gap of my knowledge to those that I, I saw had more skill sets. And so I really just started training more to try to increase competence. And, and that was like my, my tactical evolution. Um, but as time went by and we start to realize how fitness, um, tactical excellence, and then I guess I'll call it moral, if not mental, moral and mental, like the psychosocial domain, like those three domains are a part of every um, combat experience. And so when I realized I had a gap in one, I, I quickly went to try to, to fill it. Um, and as a company officer, I just, I was like, we're gonna drill every day. That's the, that's the practice we need to embody um, to gain competence. And, um, eventually, you know, obviously fitness was there too. And, and then the book really kind of became, I, I started realizing a gap in my, how the moral side of this really impacts um, those other aspects. Like I can't push through a tough workout unless I have a lot of willpower because I have to endure a lot of suffering to condition my body to endure the rigors of the fire ground. Um, same with the tactical training. Like I, there's some suffering on the drill ground. I got to put on 60 pounds of gear and then lift heavy ladders, carry saws up them, drag a, a, a heavy victim. Like if, if I'm going to condition myself for those rigors, I need to be intentional and I need to have like this solid character that'll support the execution of that. Cause I can easily tell myself it doesn't matter and I'm not going to do it. Cause I, and then tell myself arrogantly, maybe that I'm competent enough that when the moment of truth comes upon me and I, I show up on a scene that I, I have those skills, I'm, I'm way, I'm, I'm more than fit to carry them out. I'm not worried about it. Um, but it's not even, it's not about like ha having like this, uh, you know, this arrogance in the craft, uh, it, it's more about being a, a proper servant and, and steward of our profession that, you know, consistently we must be mindful in our approach to um, be diligent and and preparing ourselves for combat. So that's how the book arose eventually was 
there was almost like arguments for competence in, in some of my organizations. Like, you know, it was critical of that approach. Like you're going to train every day. You're going to, um, you're going to make your guys suffer, you know, to what are you saying that they're not competent? And there's all this cross examination, if you will, of, uh, of that approach. I wasn't the only officer doing that. Um, but it was a rare approach and those who were, were criticized at, at the kitchen table, as you know, a very influential place. And so, um, I almost had this argument, this book was already starting to kind of like, you know, write itself in my mind because I, I was having, having to combat the cultures that I was a part of. And I was like, well, how can I, instead of like, make this a political um, endeavor, how can I like understand the culture that's supporting the current behaviors and try to inform that culture that there's probably a sounder way, a more rational way for us to approach the job. And that's really what I wanted to give the fire service uh, by writing the book. Honestly, like I'm, I try to be a humble person. So putting out a book with my intentions seemed like a big ask for me because who am I? Um, but I really feel like it's needed. Uh, I mean, if I don't hit the gym daily and a 45 year old man now, I'm going to struggle on the fire ground to, to, to keep up with the need of the victim. If I don't drill daily, uh, I lose skills quickly. Like, I lose them quickly. I'll just put it that way. So if, if I don't commit to my intention daily, um, those skill sets will be weak uh, for the need of the victim. And then that lays it out in the book. I mean, like we have six minutes to get a victim out of the structure. Right. So physically, tactically, we have to be excellent. And by proxy, morally, we also have to be excellent because that's what supports the amount of sacrifice we need to give the discipline to this craft. So hopefully I didn't go off too far of, uh, no, that's perfect. Okay. Um, you talk about the moral side of, of it. And I remember years ago, um, when I first discovered, uh, Boyd and the OODA loop and all of those things, I actually, uh, became really good friends with um, Chet Richards who worked side by side with Boyd. And he actually used to come ride with me at Atlanta and he helped me develop some tactical decision games and things like that. So when I started reading the book and I looked and I was like, okay, observing, orienting, deciding, acting, I said, there has to be some tie there a little bit that there had to be some influence. Um, not exactly in, in the same order, but, um, was there some influence of uh, of Boyd in your in your thought process? Yeah, there was actually absolutely. Uh, There's a lot of influence from Boyd, uh, and there was a lot of influence from um, the uh, War Fighting Doctrine um, mm -hmm. Marine Corps uh, Doctrine yeah. Publication One. So yeah. MCDP One, anybody can download that and read that. I I, I stumbled upon that through um, Leadership Under Fire. They did a mental performance initiative at. Uh, the Milwaukee Fire Department, great reading lists and great contact to talk about the human factors of combat. And that's kind of where I started to add the psychosocial mental uh, performance game to, to my preparation. 
and conditioning for fire combat. And, and that's, that's where a lot of that comes from. Um, so Boyd, so I, I went deep on Boyd because what I started to see was, you know, he was really delving into how danger attacks the mind and the emotions of, of combatants, any combatants. And so once you can bridge the gap of like a, a fire combatant has a lot of similarity with a soldier who's in combat at wartime, once you can bridge that gap, we both face danger, uncertainty, disorder, and chaos. You know, we just don't have a human enemy that's attacking us. We have natural forces that are attacking us. Um, we, we engage in that battle. You know, they're not necessarily attacking us on the outset, but they're attacking our mission, which is life. Right. And so we're subject to those forces. And so how does the military combat those forces? Well, Boyd really laid it out for the Marine Corps, uh, adopted it more than any other um, military organization, but he really laid it out quite well in patterns of conflict. And so I took a deep dive and and watched uh, all of his, I I found some videos, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously the internet is great on on some of his uh, presentations to the military leaders at the time. And then also read through as many papers as of his I could get my hands on. So, um, you know, his findings were very similar to Gary Klein's findings on decision makings that we, we need to make decisions in time stress atmospheres. And it's not an analytical approach. It's more of an experiential and instinctual approach. Those were very valuable to me. Uh, But then also, um, the moral forces that we talked about earlier, I found them to be very uh, helpful in dealing with danger, menace, chaos, and certainty to, to help me improve my, I guess, my my wholesale approach to getting better at firefighting. So, um, like, you would talk about how do we combat danger? Well, our biggest counterweight to danger is cohesion you know there's more than one of us on the fire ground fighting this and and you know um dealing with these dangers and we all know that when you're on a in a superheated smoke condition with no visibility and and the fire is still still rolling and it's unknown location when you're you're in that search um you're you're kind of in a fear locker to a certain degree you're you know that you're in a um in a dangerous condition. And one of the biggest comforts at that moment is somebody searching with you. If you hear your buddy Dave is searching down in a different room and he says, Jeff, you good yet? You instantly feel I can search another room. Right. So that's a moral force that's pushing you to the initiative of life. So that's a that's a great counterweight that we should be aware of and that we can have on the fire ground. So, you know, calling out when you're in that condition to your your partner that you're searching with hey jeff you good that that's just us um pushing our will and shaping that event you know because we if we push through and we search the next room we find a victim we've now shaped that untenable event for that victim to hopefully a tenable rescue um same with uh the disorder on the fire ground and uncertainty i've heard so many stories and had my own where we're dealing with like, I don't know how we're gonna get ourselves out of this event. 
I don't know how we're going to save this person. Maybe they were in a mangled up car and you see injuries that are really like, I've never seen this before. It's so novel to me and so, so disordered right now that I don't know how I'm going to get this person out. The pressure is now on me, anxiety, fear, vulnerability. They're all starting to mount. And then all of a sudden, um, the next company comes in and it's a company that you know has trusted experience and credible members. And now all of a sudden they come in, they say, Hey, what can we do to support your mission? How can, what can we do to support the operation? Now all of a sudden that harmony. So that's a moral force that Boyd talks about the harmony that brings a level of, again, cohesion and, and confidence to the event that'll help you focus on executing the tactics which hopefully you got drilled in that competence is a big piece, but it'll help you focus and not be distracted by all the moral forces. Um, you know, Boyd was very instrumental in me learning these things and then valuing more because as a, as a leader in St. Paul, I valued the tactical competence and the fitness, um, much more than I did the, the cohesion. I wasn't even aware of it. Uh, I knew that we had to have, you know, good relations on a team to execute well, but I didn't have the appreciation of it until I started reading patterns of conflict and then mm -hmm. seeing it in some of our teams in Milwaukee. Now as a Milwaukee firefighter, you're seeing high, highly effective teams and what their behaviors were. Well, their behaviors are, they, they spend a lot of time at the kitchen table and they spend a lot of time with each other talking, uh, playing sports, go, helping each other outside of the work. And they're developing their cohesion, you know, maybe by the leadership of the team. I'm not sure how all those constructs necessarily come into play. That's something I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to dive into. But that highly cohesive team, uh, it empowers the competence to be executed well um, and not right. be distracted. So those, right. those were factors from Boyd I learned, yeah. It, it creates that implicit level of communication that yeah. simplifies everything so that you know what the other person is doing. They don't have to use a lot of words. If they say something, uh, you know, almost, almost like the emojis on uh, social media is like they can be misinterpreted if you don't know the person who's sending the message. They're like, oh, is he, is he mad or, right. you know, whatever. And with that implicit communication, it just speeds everything up so fast that you're yeah. able to, to accomplish a lot on the, on the morality thing. If I remember correctly, um, and, and I, I get them all confused cause I've read them all Boyd, Klein, Decker, um, the absolute lowest form of the cycle of decision. If there's, if there's no training to fall back on, there's no repetition, there's no slide tray, then your decision defaults to your moral character and your, your upbringing. So if faced with a certain decision, there's no SOP. Should I go the extra 10 feet? The conditions are deteriorating. Uh, I'm hurting. I don't know what to do. Am I, you know, and there's all these things that are balanced. Like the policy says, I'm not supposed to be in here. The chief is saying that I got to come out right now. When you're faced with that, that, that decision loop goes to your moral character. And then you make the decision to either 
go a little further, grab that person or, or not. And that's a struggle, man. That's an internal, internal struggle because you're trying to appease all sides. And for some people, it might be easy. You know, right. they just, they just follow the policy or they just, you know, do whatever. But for, for others, it's, it's a very difficult uh, process. So let's go through, uh, just talk a little bit um, about orienting. Um, you've got destructive forces on the fire ground, the nature of fire combat, the nature of a firefighter adopting a philosophy to guide our intent. Just in a brief synopsis, what is what is the goal of that chapter? To, to understand your nature against the nature of the fire ground so that you have a heightened awareness of right now I'm I'm on this search and I'm super anxious and I'm now having a tendency to really hug this wall and I'm not being very effective because I'm not moving with any type of speed or fluidity and I'm not in the area where victims are. So, you know, firefighter rescue survey is giving us a lot of great input about uh, where victims are found. You know, I don't, I don't think they have a question about, did you find the victim next to the wall, but paths of egress, and, and target areas like beds, those are where victims are found. And so a path of egress is not against the wall. So your nature of trying to comfort yourself by being on a wall and being oriented to that wall is counter to where the mission um, is optimized, I guess. You know, the spaces where we can actually find victims and paths of egress on beds, um, you know, our, our, our nature is counter to that. We, we find comfort in hugging that wall or, um, you know, being right next to our, our buddy. Well, speed is another, you know, six minutes we have to get that victim out for a greater than 50% survival rate. Well, if we're, we're right next to our, uh, our partner on that search, if we're, especially if we're in physical contact, which was what I was taught and many in the Midwest region were taught that you should be in physical contact during the search. Well, now we're not covering square footage as some of these um, other passionate search members will tell you. Uh, we're not covering it quickly. So that six minutes is getting eaten up for our own safety because of our vulnerability. So I, wanna, I want people to understand like that tactic may have a spot in your response. If, if the conditions are so bad, that you guys, that as we're searching, we need to be tight because it's so superheated, it could pop off any minute that we need to be right on top of each other. That's a that's a decision you might, you might have to make that decision. I'm not saying that it's a tactic that should never be deployed, but if you're doing that in, you know, laminar smoke conditions, uh, light heat, well, you're, that the victim's dying quickly in those conditions, right. yeah, yet. And you're making a decision for your vulnerability, but not for their rescue, um, because their rescue is time. And your your gear can support those conditions for a significant amount of time. I mean, minutes, right? So your gear can support that for several minutes. Uh, you can get that search done on the first floor. You should know how long it takes you to search a first floor. You can get it done within several minutes. So I, I think you should split up a little bit. And, and take what the fire ground's given you to be more combat effective. Um, so that's, that's really what that chapter was about. Like what, I mean, and everybody knows it's heat, smoke, uh, structural degradation. Those are like the destructive nature, 
that's the destructive nature of the fire ground. But I don't know that everybody crosses the boundary of how does that nature of the fire ground counter my own nature as a human being, my own vulnerabilities, because I do make the assertion in the book that vulnerability is what's preventing us from being more aggressive on the fire ground when the victims need that. They need us to be aggressive in our decision-making and our tactical execution to dig into that six minutes. We just don't have time. I mean, I, if we had 20 minutes, then we, it would be rational to be much more safety focused in all of our tactics. I would agree with you, but we don't have that. That's just not in that that's proven over and over with the, the, the smoke um, that is now prevalent in our firegrounds, modern firefighting, you know, which is, you know, it hasn't, we've been doing plastics for 60, since the sixties and seventies that they've right. been around for a while. So on top of that, the fire progression and the heat release rate of, of these products, they just show us that we don't have the time to implement all the safety focused tactics in the initial engagement. Um, we have time. All we have time is, is to manage risk more effectively through aggressive behavior, which is supported by competence. And because of the moral forces, it's also su supported by high character, um, mm -hmm. which is what you were talking about a little bit earlier is the, the better our character is, um, the better informed we're going to be, the, the more cohesive we'll be, the more trust we'll have. You mentioned earlier, uh, you know, like implicit communication. We all, that, that leads to a fluid outcome in how we maneuver on the fire ground. Well, we don't have implicit communications unless we have trust amongst each other. That's right. where that chemistry that we develop is, is going to be um, built. That, that's, again, a lot of the kitchen table stuff, you know, if we're spending our, our days at the firehouse in separate rooms and whatever we do in those rooms, whether we're furthering our real estate business or we're playing video games, I don't know. Um, it's not building implicit communications at that point at the fire station. I, I know that much. Um, yeah. So those behaviors tend not to lead to combat effective outcomes. I, I think every fire officer and most firefighters would agree if they went and walked into a station and there was a, bu a bustle either in the apparatus bay or in the kitchen, um, they would say this it's probably a pretty decent fire company or fire, right. you know, if they come into it and, and there's uh tumbleweeds coming by and the fire apparatus being in the kitchen and everybody's in their separate corners in the station. I think they know that there's going to be a dysfunctional outcome, you know, it, it, at some level, you know, and I'm not trying to criticize the person. I'm trying to criticize the behavior and, and raise awareness to it. Right. For sure. Yeah. All right. In a second chapter observing you got the fire service mission victim survivability nature of tactics quantifying aggression and risk validating aggression outcomes observing a disconnect and learning to manage risk um what's some thoughts on on that chapter so th this was the chapter three if you will right or is that section two, two. Oh, to observing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So orienting now that we know, like we're aware of some of the forces of fire combat and uh, the, the nature of them and some of our own nature, 
we uh, let's observe what's what's happening. Like let's increase our awareness. So victim survivability, I mentioned it earlier, like let's really understand six minutes. Why, what's happening that they're not living in six minutes? You know, why is, why are we losing more of them percentage wise after the six minutes? And we talked about that's That's six minutes from our arrival. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Six minutes from our arrival. So they've already been under the um, attack of the enemy, if you will. Uh, for for a few minutes, like you know, two to four minutes, likely, right? Um, right. So it's like let's understand what our mission is. That's that's part of the observation because we do have uh, mission creep is a big word out there. We do have that. I mean, we're we're constantly on EMS runs, so we're focused on that. We're constantly adding um, more scope to our mission through special operations, um, active shooter training. You know the whatever whatever you're focusing on that's not the fire ground that's a form of it's a broad mission scope so we can we can kind of lose our our way with all these new advents to the fire service well essentially that's going to have some impact on how much time we spend developing our tactics and then understanding the nature of our tactics and how that influence like that's actually a big one to me how that influences victim survivability if we're if we're getting in a water supply before we actually get to the scene, that might be a good idea for like the safety of our operations. Uh, eventually, we definitely need a water supply, but the timing and prioritizing of it is is really starting to come at it's eating into the six minutes. That's so, right. is that a good idea if our main mission tenant is life? Um, at some point. Yeah, it's firefighter life too, but we know we got 500 gallons and we know whether or not we can tactically engage offensively interior. We know we still have that option. If the fire is so significant that we can't tactically engage on the interior, well, then then we will have to get that water supply first. But we should assume because six minutes is nothing. I mean, it's not nothing, but it's it's very difficult for us to get people out in six minutes with all of our gear and all the friction on the fire ground. We should assume that we need to get in there and find them. Um, that'll help us dig into that um, and be more combat effective. So, so then understanding that the nature of our tactics, a lot of times the water supply immediately, the, uh, the backup line before search, you know, a lot. Of, I've seen that a lot in my career, uh, and, and so if if we institute that before we actually conduct the searches, we're going to have a RIT team established, a water supply, uh, a backup line. A lot of those are for the safety of the firefighter, but they're not for the survivability of the victim. Right. Um, so if we don't understand the nature of those tactics, we're just going to deploy them because some consensus standard told us that that was a best practice and we don't want to get sued if we go against best practices. That's some of my, I guess, observations just to see how departments run. Now, you know, then I start talking about risk versus reward. So how, okay, so let's say we abandon some of those consensus standards and some of those safety practices in the first five minutes of our scene. What risk are we actually realizing? Because most people that I talk to would would say searching without a line at at a time was reckless. 
And I'm like, well, it depends on the scene, right? It might be reckless. Um, but let's see how many people are, how many firefighters are actually dying or getting injured as a result of these aggressive behaviors. And it's very, it's a small percentage. It's 3%. And what I did was like a 10 year span. So why would we, do we know that, that that's actually how people are getting hurt on the fire ground or dying on the fire ground? Um, are we, you know, ignorant to a degree to that, to that, um, reality? You know, or, or is, are there other influences at play that are dictating our behavior on the fire ground? Um, so then I started talking about that disconnect of right. there's a disconnect somewhere. So how do we manage risk more appropriately um, after we kind of go through those things in the book? All right. Then we move to deciding aggression on the fire ground, um, traits of the aggressive firefighter and aggressive contact. Ag- aggressive conduct. So that was like one of my favorite parts right there was, uh, and then I like the, the ending, uh, sub title summary of aggression. (laughs) Well, um, yeah. So I, I, because I kind of laid it out as they don't have time we have to be combat effective. So we have to have a high skill set, a high more, we have to have, have very intention. We have to be very intentional. And I talked to a few new firefighters teaching firefighter one the other day about, you know, how many of us are working out to the degree where our heart rate's close to 180 and above, because that's what it's going to be on the fire ground. We have, we have proof of that. You know, the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee performance lab puts heart rate monitors on our firefighters, including myself. And our heart rate is, is, is up there when we're engaged. Um, how often are we doing that in the, in the gym? Cause for a while in my career, I would jog, at, you know, get my heart rate at 140 and just jog. And then I would go to the weights and I would, uh, develop my strength, but I bet you my heart rate never was above 150. Um, that's not an effective way to condition my body for what's actually happening on the fire ground. So you know, I would be getting punched in the face every time I go to the fire ground. So, um, an aggressive decision in this, so deciding that's the name of the chapter, an aggressive decision would be to, um, conduct myself and prepare myself for an overstressed condition. Cause that's really what it is. I'm, I'm overstressing my body on the fire ground. I, I, it's hard for me to ever work out in a capacity that the fire ground can throw at me because I have 60 pounds of gear on and I'm, and I'm doing things, you know, I'm not taking a break between sets, you know, right. You know, I'm not reaching like, Oh, I only got 10 of these reps to do. And then I get my 30 second, two minute, five minute break, whatever it is. I don't get that. And, and I don't get, um, I don't get cooled down through sweating, right? So I, I have to be aggressive and intentional about how I prepare myself. And so the other thing about aggression I found was is I didn't have a good, like I had to define it. I had to like, I had to understand it if I was to embody it. And so I would read uh, Vincent Dunn and how, um, he talked about aggression and, and he had, you know, it's in the book. He has 
at least uh, 10 acts on the fire ground that the chiefs in, in, in the FDNY at that time deemed as aggressive. And some of them were searching without a line, searching above the fire, rooftop ventilation, those, you know, interior offensive uh, attack lines. Those were behaviors that were aggressive. That's how he was defining aggressiveness. Um, I wanted to know that. I, I wanted to know that I'm going to ag aggressive behavior is that I understand what so safety focused tactics are. I'm going to forego some of them in this initial engagement, the first five minutes for the sake of our mission. I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't want to, I'm going to, instead of getting a water supply, we're going to go right to the scene and we're going to get inside immediately. You know, and if I'm on the engine, that means with an attack line, if it's on the truck, it, it means a different uh, manner of behavior. I'm, I'm not necessarily waiting for the engine um, to have that line established before I do searches. Is there tenable spaces I can search right now um, so that I can make a, so I can better shape this scene to survivable outcomes? Like, so I need to understand that definition for me to embody it. And then, you know, that, that, that conduct, what, what does that look like? Well, I mentioned a few of those things, but I kind of boiled it down to like being ready Right. So my mind is ready to be engaged in that behavior. I know I'm going to assume additional risk. So if we go back to Boyd's OODA loop, what do we need to do to competently assume that risk? Well, we, we better understand fire behavior. We better understand building construction, but then we better understand our tactics um, so that we can execute them instinctually um, so that we can do it fluidly so that we, we uh, shorten the amount of time we're exposed to those risks and, and essentially how long that victim is exposed to those conditions. Um, willingness, uh, you know, now that I'm ready, you know, am I willing to do this? We have to have a high degree of willingness to engage and then able your ability. Um, again, your ability. So one thing I really do want to press upon people that I'm continuing to learn is you know, will to fight is, is a part of aggressive behavior, your will to fight. Well, that will to fight is actually increased by competence and character. And, and that's straight out of like a research study that the RAND Corporation did for the Army is they were trying to make the case that the Army asked them, I believe, to make the case is will to fight, you know, the, the ability to persist and engage in, in battle is that is that like moral attribute? Is that a significant factor in our combat outcomes? And they they said it was very significant. Um, it might be the most important factor. Right. And so um, that competence, they, they found that competence and character on the individual and small unit basis were the biggest contributors to will to fight. Um, so essentially to me, that's in line with aggressive behavior. Is, is if we can up our competence, we we then by proxy up our our confidence and our abilities, and then the character of the matter comes down to some of the things we mentioned earlier. Some of that harmony we create within ourselves and our units, um, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a factor that I dive into uh, on a small degree in the book. But I, I'm actually thinking we, we probably need to dive into it quite a bit more because that's 
those are the the small like soft skills at the station that we can develop um, before the actual conflict. And I think that's what we talked about with some of those things that happen at the kitchen table and, and stations, right? Well, one of the things that, that is is very apparent when you when you get into this book is like some of the policies that we see um, almost the robotic and, and like you said, they were, they were put in place for the firefighter safety, like get a water supply first, make sure you have this, make sure you have a backup line. Those policies were born as a treatment to a symptom, not to, not to actually make us more effective and functional. They're treating the symptom of our workforce not having mastered the knowledge, skills, and abilities that, that we need to, to perform at a high level. And I always laugh when, uh, you know, you get some of these uh, folks that will be like on the radio, be sure to maintain your situational awareness. Well, that's not a checklist that you bring to the incident that's there. So much of your situational awareness is determined by what you've done up to that point. Like you're bringing all this stuff with you. You're bringing your, your competent, your level of competence, your knowledge of building construction, your knowledge of fire, all of that weighs in very heavily. And some people think that it's just that you say the word, which means, you know, they're, they're thinking as, okay, everybody must maintain situational awareness. It's not that simple. It's not a checklist of things that you can just apply to anybody. There's, it's so much has to be a part of the entire system from recruit training to the type of um, personalities and dynamics that you hire into your organization to the training. Look back at our uh, recruit training. I think everywhere, it wasn't just the, the Midwest, everywhere in the, in the country lines up and you do front door, right hand, left hand search, crawling in a line, sweeping out. And we know now, that that is not practical if if we really want to save somebody two in the morning uh, they're asleep upstairs and we start our search at the front door and crawl around the living room for five minutes before we even get up upstairs so that's that goes back to the alignment you talk about in training is it's not that you don't learn how to do those wall searches but you've got to expand as you're mastering this to understand that everything is is conditional. But I thought it was important to point out that a lot of those policies are there to make up for our lack of preparation on the other end. Yeah, I and I would agree. I actually wrote that note down as we were discussing earlier, Chief. Uh, and we talked about policies, and I, I'm not. I've never been on the chief level, but just an observation that I've made is. You know, policies typically aren't well drilled. So a, a policy does seem to be like this um, occupational workforce um, issue mediation, right? Like, okay, you know, maybe maybe we're having some some firefighters who have this type of a injury. Well, we're gonna we're gonna investigate this a little bit. This injury seems to be popping up. Oh, it's because their behavior on the fire ground is such. All right, well, here's the new policy. Well, from an administration approach, sure, you're, you're probably acting on the best uh, information you have from researching outside the organization, um, 
and then creating a policy that you believe is protecting your members, you might not have fully delved what that is doing as far as impacting really the mission of why we were ever formed to, to save lives. So we do need to counterweight it against like, well, how does this impact the mission? And, and then maybe engage our, you know, our vested stakeholders who are, um, you know, some of the most credible members in our department who, who go to a decent amount of fires and, and see how, what do you guys think? How do you guys think this new policy is going to weight against the mission and, and your efficacy on the fire ground? Um, if we start waiting in that manner, it may get well a little bit more well received because then we can we can tweak that policy. And what I said by well drilled is like how many times do we see a new policy come into effect and we just kind of go about our business all the same because are the then down level um, battalion chiefs, captains, lieutenants are they drilling the policy with their members? Because it's one thing to talk about it, but behaviors don't change in that manner, you have to go and drill it consistently. Um, and you're going to see a regression in your capabilities. Well, nobody wants to regress in their skill sets, So they're not going to adopt it unless they're continuously drilled in it, mentored, and then supported through the implementation of the policy. It's a, this is why change is so difficult. And I think, I, I believe in our industry and uh, in probably every industry is um, it's one thing to just throw it out there on a piece of paper. It's another thing to support your membership through adopting the new behavior. And, and, and really, I mean, you really have to counter it against the mission. Like is, if this policy is, is impacting that six minute time, then it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a fire service policy. I mean, right. like, unless, unless we're seeing again, you know, do the risk uh, reward analysis, like, like in the book. Okay, you know what? This VES tactic, we're seeing, I don't know the number, 40% of our line of duty deaths are because of VES. If that was the case, then yeah, we really need to address as a department, we need to address that behavior. Like either we're not doing it right or it's not it's not sustainable for our membership in, in supporting the mission. Because you know, half the time at that point, we're losing our member who's trying to save the victim. That wouldn't be rational right. um, behavior. But that's not the case, as we know, right? There's a lot of that that goes on. Is like there's there's a lot of emotional policy because nobody wants nobody wants to lose anybody. And one of my friends says it best. He's like, "I'm not a kamikaze, you know. I, I do. I'm not trying to get hurt. But if you'll just let me do what I'm trained to do, then I can be effective. And uh, I think that's important. It's like the 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 policies. It's one thing to have knowledge or, or data, but you also have to have the understanding of how that fits into the, to the whole system. And if you don't have that understanding and you're just looking at it from a bean counter perspective or a strictly numbers game, you're going to make some bad policy yeah. if that's all you're, you're looking at. And some, you know, some of the things that, that came to mind when you were saying that, that I've experienced and seen is, uh, you know, uh, a moratorium on free weights in the station, uh, uh, banning of large tires and workouts and stuff because somebody hurt their back on a on a tire flip, uh, you know, at one point um, somebody strained a muscle on, on a free weight uh, doing something. So um, there may be some legitimate 
times where that needs to be addressed. But for the most part, if you look at it as a whole, it's pretty good that those guys are taking the time to, to work out. And there is a level of injury that yeah. should be acceptable in the quest. But, but you do need as an organization to have that fitness and, and the planning and stuff uh, organized and in a, in a program right. that is, that is functional. Well, and, and might that person who strained their back flipping the tire, like, I don't want to say it's good that they got injured, but I bet you they became aware of their body positioning on, on, you know, when they were doing something strenuous and, and now they're probably strengthening that area because they found a weakness. They found a, a poor approach in their, um, range of motion, maybe a limitation, maybe their b- body mechanics were, were not, um, in alignment. And so now they found a weakness that they can make a strength. Luckily. They didn't find that out while they were trying to pick up a 250 pound victim on the fire ground. Right. And die in the process. Right. From, right yeah. And then strain their back. And now that a lot more expensive. Yeah. They've, they've created a bigger liability because maybe a RIT team now has to deploy and deal with not just a firefighter, a down member, but a fire victim at the same time. Now that is a, now we have some big friction on the fire ground. Yep. So I, I do agree with you on that chief. I think, uh, you know, that's a, that's a part of doing our, our job is we're, we have to manage all of these risks because, because our job is so strenuous and it's stressful on every morally, physically, and mentally. Um, we have a stressful endeavor. That's why there's nobility inherent in it is that we're willing to assume that, um, it, it, we just need to continue like being intentional you know, like some of the approaches you brought up to me were a professional approach. Like, yeah, I suppose if, if you're selling, I don't know, let's say if you're selling uh, access panels or construction products. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like we're doing this for a profit, but not necessarily for life. So right. we, we do have to really ratchet back how much liability we're going to assume regarding the wellness of our members, our members, have gotten into this because they know that they're going to put their lives on the line. Um, so let's respect that one, you know, let's support them, but let's also know that we can't take the professionals approach who make construction products to a job that is, is dangerous and, and strenuous as ours. We need to have a, well, that's why I use the military approach. Right. You know, when I looked uh, in the book and I talked about, you know, some of the things I talked about with the physicality of, and, and intention um, that the military conditions their members on a daily basis, it's very different than the way the fire service does. And I think it's because the fire service kind of is ebbing and flowing on like a paramilitary professional, like w- we try to adopt some of the business professional models in certain aspects and then also some of the military where the other the outcomes aren't always the greatest when we take that business model approach to managing risk we need we need to ebb a little bit closer my opinion obviously towards the military's approach to these things um because they have more combat effective outcomes they've learned that you know in battle yep 
So I, I would think, I mean, just for me reading the book, it's, it covers the whole gamut. Like if you're, if you're a recruit, you're going to get some out of this book. If you've got three or four years on, if you're an officer, if you're uh, a shift commander, battalion chief, or the fire chief themselves, there is something in this book for everybody in the fire service. But what do you, what do you hope that the fire service takes away from this work? And I appreciate you saying that that was the intention was, I do feel like um, it does offer the spectrum of firefighters uh, something of value. And uh, leadership is a behavior. I learned that from Aaron Shield or uh, Fields, sorry. Leadership's a behavior. And, and he, he's led our fire service quite well over the past decades, right? Um, so my hope is that firefighters and chiefs take away from the book that we really need to be intentional about cultivating outcomes in our departments. It's not, not just on the fire ground, but also in the stations on the drill ground. If we're not intentional about um, developing our members, both their character and their competence, we're going to have dysfunctional outcomes that, that, that much I know just through, experience, you know, and some of that was my dysfunctional outcomes. I mean, uh, you know, in a class, I'll, I'll tell people about my mistakes and, and poor assumptions. So we really have to cultivate our culture. Otherwise we're, we're conditioning our behavior for something other than the mission of life. What, what are, what are we conditioning our behavior for? Is it just for us being comfortable in the station? Is it just for us to have, be comfortable on the fire ground? Are we not going to assume the vulnerabilities that are inherent with this profession? These things we, we should be mindful of. And that's, that's really what I'm trying to lay out in the book um, and hope that people can take away and benefit from. That is absolutely awesome. The book is Mastering the Craft. I think it is uh, a must read for anybody in the service and, um, Again, thank you for taking the time to to put it together. I think you have captured in this book what a lot of our fire service leaders, instructors wanted to say, but maybe couldn't communicate because they didn't have the right words or the background. You've done it with data. You've done it with scientific study. Uh, you've done it in an academic way, but also, um, it's not, it, it wasn't too bad for me and I'm definitely not on the academic side of, uh, of reading. So it didn't get, it didn't, it didn't floor me to read those graphs and charts and all. I thought it was, it was a perfect balance and, uh, I can't thank you enough. I'm glad you're doing well. Glad your family is doing well and, uh, and keep up the great work. Thanks, Chief, and I. I just want to, you know, publicly take the opportunity here to, 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 you know, tell you and the fire engineering as a whole that I'm, I'm grateful that you given me a chance. Um, this was hard for me to write, as far as like putting myself out there and, and, you know, thinking that maybe I had something to offer. Um, it was very empowering when you guys uh, brought me in and, and published the book. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, and and I want to, you know, take a minute to remember chief Bobby Halden, who was a part of that push as well. 
and and was uh, a, you know I had a great conversation with him about this book, and I'll, I'll always remember that from him and what he's done for our fire service. Um, thank you. Absolutely, and you can get your copy at fireengineeringbooks.com along with a lot of other um, great authors and topics. And that'll bring us to a close. Uh, We'll back the rig back in the station here, shut the door, take a little break, and we'll see you next time on the books.